Thank you, Jim. Hooray, hurrah, once again, the Greg Proops Film Club convenes here at Hollywood's most uh, audacious film palace, located right here in the heart of Hollywood, where freaks are available on the street at all hours. Uh, the Egyptian Theater, uh, right here. Yeah, you're allowed to cheer if you like. Thank you for your enthusiasm, I appreciate it. Tonight we're showing the 1967 classic by Norman Jewison, uh, In the Heat of the Night, and uh, we couldn't be more excited about it, especially in light of the fact that, of course, the Oscars once again uh, prove that um, the people who vote for them are um, from another era. Uh, the Green Book won Best Picture. Uh, in the Heat of the Night was Best Picture, by the way. Uh, the one time that you could say they absolutely got it right. Uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated and they had to hold the Oscar program two days and then this picture won Best Picture. How about that? Um, Sidney Poitier is a... Uh, gigantic monolith who stands astride cinema like a god from times antediluvian and past, um, stripped and born out of the Caribbean via Florida and making his way into cinema to make everything good again that was ever wrong uh, with motion pictures. I think he righted uh, American cinema, and this is from the giant part of his, the middle of his career, the to sir with love years, and yeah, exactly. Uh, he. Uh, He's um, unbelievably sexy, and if you ever have a chance to see Sidney Poitier in person, you should, because it's like going to Mount Rushmore if Mount Rushmore was cool. <laughs> the a giant edifice that is Sidney Poitier overwhelms you at once and leaves you breathless with desire. We were in a grocery store that will remain nameless, Bristol Farms, and... <laughs> For our friends who are listening elsewhere uh, to the podcast, Bristol Farms is an operation here in Hollywood. There's several of them in there for rich alcoholics, for people who <laughs> bribe universities with half a million dollars to take their kids on a scuba diving scholarship. That's where they shop. They shop at Bristol Farms and they go to the hot food section there and they argue with the poor people of the underclass who work there. And that's what Bristol Farms is all about. Um, overpriced wine and, um, uh, and, and, and an extraordinary amount of candy and of course halva. But the point is this, uh, we're at the Bristol Farms and uh, my wife Jennifer, who by the way curates every picture that we show on the Greg Proops Film Club. Um, yeah, she's here tonight. She chose this fine motion picture. Um, was with me and uh, we were shopping together and uh, as one does, uh, just picking up a few items, um, some, you know, ling cod, water chestnuts, <laughs> a box of ding-dongs, and, uh, um, you know, a, a, a gigantic bag of green beans. And uh, we're making our way to the checkout stand and uh, Sidney Poche was wearing a super, super members only um, sneakers era casual windbreaker at the checkout stand and had a plastic carrier bag in his hand. That'll date it for you. Yeah, we, we all remember the glory days of plastic carrier bags. And uh, uh, he was standing at the checkout stand and Jennifer is usually quite good about spotting people from far away. I'm awful. Uh, one, I can't see. And uh, two, I've had eye surgery recently so I can't see even more than I uh, couldn't see before. Then why are you hosting a cinema show? Shut up, um, is my answer to you. Uh, John Ford had one eye, so bug off. Um, uh, the, the director of House of Wax had one eye and could not see in 3D. So I don't think not being able to see is any impediment to talking about cinema in any way. And so many famous people over the years uh, I've seen with my wife, and she spotted them first. Uh, Jose Canseco, who you may know as a baseball star from the 80s, um, uh, and uh, wrote a book called Juiced, and then another book called More Juiced about his experience of 
shooting up steroids in the bathroom of the Oakland Athletics baseball stadium with Mark McGuire. And uh, she saw him first. I, I can think of countless others where she spotted them first, including, fantastically, we were at the Sistine Chapel. Yes, we were cut to. We are at the Sistine Chapel in Rome, just picking up some items. Uh, uh, a, a, a cassock, um, a, a watch of the creation by Michelangelo, and uh, a swatch of the creation by Michelangelo, and, a, and an enormous pine cone. And, um, of course, some papal detritus. And, we're standing in the checkout there, uh, digging on the, and to give you the kind of uh, idea, the kind of uh, completist that I am, I brought a pair of binoculars to the Sistine Chapel because the Sistine Chapel ceiling is quite high. It's not easily available. You don't get a stepladder or whatever. It's higher than the ceiling here. So you have to, um, you have to gaze upon it with a, a binoculars for proper viewing pleasure. Jennifer turns to me and goes, oh look, Helmut Newton's wife. <laughs> And I was like, that's a fairly interesting um, one to pull out of your uh, waistcoat pocket. And, and she's like, well, he's followed by Helmut Newton. And of course, I look over, and there's Helmut Newton and his wife. And they didn't have binoculars. Um, I would have offered them to him, but the crush of paparazzi was so intense. Um, and the helicopters that were in the room prevented me from getting to him. So getting back to the Bristol Farms down here on Robertson, uh, and as again, to orient it for people who live in other parts of the United States, if you live in the Midwest, um, or, or the South, rather. Um, imagine um, Kroger's if Celia Ward was there every day. <laughs> so, thank you. I'll be here for a good, a good deal longer. Uh, it's that kind of star power. Like, for instance, the other day we were at the Bristol, um, just picking up some items, uh, a raincoat, uh, and a, a box of Godiva chocolates, and some tchotchkes, and Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top was there. And he was pushing a cart around, and he had his phone out. And he was dressed exactly like in ZZ Top. He had a long uh, rock and roll jacket that said Dos Tacos on it, um, uh, like piping pipe pants with piping on them, pants that had piping. I don't, well, they weren't pipe pants, but they were pants that had included piping. Um, suede rock and roll shoes, um, the long beard, and that weird scrunchy hedgehog hat that he wears, and, uh, and, and shades on. And he bought, and now it can be told, because I'm the kind of person who uh, likes to um, TMZ the, this, this uh, all up in this place. Uh, he bought a gallon of orange chicken from the takeout bar. I've never seen anyone buy this much orange chicken. Now, we've all bought orange chicken from the takeout bar. Whether you want to admit it to yourself or not, you know you have. Um, in New York, not so much. There's a bodega on every corner in New York, and there's always the Chinese food at every bodega there, and you're like, who buys this? Because it's open to the elements. And New York is, of course, as you know, a festering um, cesspool of rats hiding in uh, you know, various containers. Um, LA, uh, the rats run along uh, telephone lines very discreetly and very sanitarily above us. Uh, and um, from roof to roof. So that's the difference between New York and Los Angeles, really, the main difference. Um, you have to have up close personal encounters with rats in New York. Uh, sometimes rats that have, uh, um, uh, you know, physical defects, maybe they, they're missing an ear. Um, the last rat I saw in New York was smoking. Um, and was on a broken scooter. They're very aggressive. So Billy Gibbons had bought a container of orange chicken that was this bloody big, and he had two cases of LaCroix water, one carbonated, one not carbonated, and that was the sum total of what was in his cart, which is not my favorite uh, thing I've ever seen. I, one time I saw Billy D. Williams at the one on Fairfax with nothing but alcohol, like a case of wine, a case of beer, like 16 bottles of vodka. And I went up to him and I went, is that all for you? And he went, hello. And uh, that was pretty exciting. 
when Lando Calrissian lays one on you like that, and you know he's about to go home and get it on. So there we are in line, and Sidney Poitier's there. And I said to my wife, Jennifer, I says, Jennifer, um, says I, um, come over to this line, to aisle two or whatever it is, checkout stand two. And being the um, fully empowered modern woman that she is, uh, she didn't take my last name, although why anyone would take the last name Proops is a question best left to philosophers. Um, I think every woman's always dreamed of taking the name Proops as their last name. Uh, or Hemenschlager. Hi, come on in, you guys. Don't be shy. And uh, uh, she says, why? Why should I go to this aisle? And I was like, do yourself a favor and come on over here. And she goes, no, I don't want to go to that. I want to go to this aisle. And I was like, Jennifer, please. I've only asked two things of you in my life. One, that you accept my hand in marriage. And two, that you uh, wear my ring around your neck. Three things. Four things. That we buy a car together. And, f and th fifthly, that you come over to this aisle to check out. And she finally sees that the reason I'm bringing her over to aisle two is Sidney Poitier is checking out with his carrier bag and his members on the jacket. And um, she emits a, a, a squeal of delight that was heard throughout the store, uh, kind of a ah! like that. And Sidney Poitier did this. The kind of, I still got it. So a couple years ago, we were at the AFI um, film festival, and they had this really bizarre night where they had Shirley MacLaine, Harrison Ford, Samuel Jackson, um, uh, Michael Myers, uh, Sidney Poitier. I'm forgetting a few. They had even more. Uh, um, maybe Cher was there as well. Instead of having it over the course of several nights, they decided to show all of their movies at the same time, all at once. At the um, uh, what's the weird Mormony place upon where the dome is, the ArcLight, and. <laughs> You know the weird culty place where they're like, if anything's wrong, come and tell us. It's like, if anything's wrong, I don't want you near me. <laughs> the $17 tub of caramel corn is my favorite part of the arc light. That and of course there's a full bar. And so uh, uh, they showed all the pictures at once. So we couldn't, we wanted, we were gonna see Samuel Jackson. You couldn't see Samuel Jackson. There was, uh, Shirley MacLaine drove by in a cart, which was nice. Not, a, I mean, not like a creek, not like a medieval, you know, a, a golf cart, obviously she didn't come creaking by in some, you know, containment. So, uh, Sidney Poitier was there with Heat of the Night. He got up on stage, and he put his glasses on, and he had a sheaf of paper. Clearly, he'd prepared these intensely long remarks. And they threw up a still of the first meeting of the American Film Institute from, like, the late 60s. And it's Coppola standing in the corner, looking like um, a Bernie 2020 um, a delegate, with the glasses and the beard like this. And uh, uh, at the table, Gregory Peck and, and uh, Sidney Poitier sitting next to each other. And the subtext of the picture, you couldn't hear it because it was a still, was that ovaries were clanging like sleigh bells <laughs> because of the majestic power of the attraction of Gregory Peck and Sidney Poitier, basically two of the hottest guys in the world. Soon here at the Egyptian, they're going to show, which we've already showed on the Greg Proops Film Club, uh, uh, Point Break, which has um, the love affair between Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze, um, where they have a surfing love affair. He teaches them to surf. They fall in love. Uh, then at the end, they get married by putting handcuffs on one another. And then they consummate their marriage by kicking each other in the face a lot, which is how men consummate their marriage in straight guy movies. So uh, 
Gregory Peck and Sidney Poitier are sitting there in the picture. Then he gets up and he has all these papers. And he gets about halfway into it and you can see that he just doesn't care at all. And he throws them on the floor and he goes, I can't stay and watch the movie because my wife's made a roast. <laughs> and I was like, are you gonna build anything? And he's like, we're going to build a church. So, yeah, he was astonishing. Then the next night, because we're film buffs, uh, we were at the TCM Festival, which it plays here and uh, various places up and down the street and whatnot. And uh, I can't remember, where, over the Highland, I think. In any, any case, uh, they were showing him, Gimme Shelter. And Albert Maisel was there, and Haskell Wexler was there. And we were ushered into a room, and there was Haskell Wexler. And Haskell Wexler had shot this picture in 1967, and did us all the very great favor of figuring out, maybe for the first time in Hollywood history, that black people's skin requires different lighting. I'm not kidding, and I wish I was lying about all of this, but when you talk about um, the racism in Hollywood, the only thing that really compares to it is the sexism in Hollywood, um, as gigantic monoliths that can never, ever, ever be overcome. And uh, uh, he determined that he needed to soften the lighting in order to show Sidney off to his highest effect. When you watch this movie, um, you will sweat along with it. It is one of the hottest movies. It is, of course, called In the Heat of the Night. Next to Do the Right Thing, I can't think of a movie where you're going to sweat more and where people drink more soda pop and where Rod Steiger chews gum so frantically that my understanding is he got through over 200 packs of gum during the filming of this movie. Um, it's also beautifully shot, as are uh, every Haskell Wexler movie. Haskell Wexler uh, told a story about Gimme Shelter where he said the um, Sonny Barger in the Oakland chapter of the um, Hell's Angels uh, threatened to kill the Maisley brothers after the movie came out of Gimme Shelter for the way they were depicted in the picture. And that in order to keep um, the Hell's Angels from uh, killing the Maisley brothers, he gave Sonny Barger a Harley Davidson and that called off the hit, which I thought was a pretty good film story. Haskell Wexler was dressed like it was 1971. He had fry boots, blue jeans, and a leather jacket and tinted shades. He looked so boss, he had to be 80 years old. Um, but time had stopped, and it was fantastic. So, so having just seen The Heat of the Night the night before, um, I was with Jennifer, and I said, uh, she says to him, uh, Haskell, we saw Heat of the Night last night. And he went, how did it look? Because he's a cinematographer, and we went, it looked great. And he was like, yeah. <laughs> An interesting side note that only I observed that has no importance whatsoever cinematically but something that I think is in, unusual. In movies from this period, people often smoke constantly. No one smokes in this movie. I don't know if it's Norman Jewison or what, but it's really wild. They shot it, it's supposed to be in Carthage, Mississippi. Um, Sidney Poitier refused to shoot in the South because him and Harry Belafonte had been chased by rednecks and threatened by racists when they were down there the year before. And he said to Norman Jewison, I'm not going south of the Mason-Dixon line to shoot any of this picture. So they pitched up in Carthage, Illinois, and uh, the set decorator and Norman Jewison were together. And down in Carthage, Illinois, uh, I know it's Illinois. <laughs> in Carthage, Illinois, there's the Mississippi River, and, and uh, uh, where this, this, this town is located, and then a giant, you know, uh, signs everywhere, and the, the, what, the water tower or whatnot that says Carthage on it. And the set designer says, Everything says Carthage, how are we going to block that out? And they changed from where they were, the movie was originally set, and Norman Jewess had said, we'll make it Carthage, Mississippi. And that, they just changed the name of the town right then and there, so that they could shoot in Illinois. 
So they required a cotton field for one scene. And Norman Jewison said he searched and searched but couldn't find a cotton field in Illinois. And I'm sure he's right. Uh, there's corn, to be sure. There's parts of Illinois that smell like a burning box of sugar pops. <laughs> Just outside of Peoria, there's a corn syrup conflagration going on. That's a holocaust of kernels. And uh, the, the smell is unforgettable once you drive through it. You'll probably never eat cereal the same way again. If you do, it'll be sideways holding your nose while wearing a, you know, a thing on your head and you lie in a shallow ditch with a fishbone that's constantly in your hair till the, moosing, you know, the waxing moon rises. But the point is this. Uh, they had to go to Tennessee for a couple days and he convinced Sidney Poitier to shoot. Sidney would not go and then he went, all right, I'll go. So they stayed at a Holiday Inn in Dyersburg, Tennessee because it was the only place in Dyersburg that allowed black people to stay there. This is 1967. This is not ancient history. I know a lot of you were born after 1967. I, of course, was but a child in 1967. Um, there are people who are alive that were adults in 1967. For instance, Norman Jewison, Sidney Poitier, and Lee Grant, who are all took a part in this motion picture, are all quite alive. Uh, and they were there. And uh, while they were there, he was uh, threatened by racists again. And evidently, Sidney Poitier slept with a gun under his pillow for the several days that they were in Dyersburg, Tennessee. Um, the, uh, Rod Steiger, who plays uh, the, the police chief, they wanted George C. Scott to do it. But Norman Jewison said, I want Rod Steiger because he looks more like a redneck sheriff. And said that he wanted him as fat as possible because he wanted his gut hanging over his belt. So every day when they had lunch, he said to Rod Steiger, ooh, that's good pecan pie. Why don't you have another slice? <laughs> uh, uh, I have to look up one name here. Where was it? Oh, there's a scene between the two of them that's a, a brilliant scene later in the picture, and I won't give anything away. Um, the script supervisor in this picture was named Meta Rebner, and she'd been Faulkner's mistress, and she was their unofficial dialogue coach because she was Southern, and she used to catch Rod Steiger out on his accent and whatnot. Um, it was raining so hard when they were going to shoot the scene that they went um, to a car, and evidently Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger improvised the scene, and Meta wrote it down. And so when you see the scene, and you'll get, when we get there, you'll recognize it. They're in a room together later in the picture. Um, that scene was improvised, written down, and then done very quickly after the rain stopped, uh, then and there. So what am I getting at? I'm getting at this. There's pictures about race that are worthy. There's pictures about race that are facile. And Hollywood maintains its resolute inability and myopia at all times in the face of everything, which is what makes Hollywood so fucking awesome. Uh, Black Panther clearly was the most popular picture last year. Um, Crazy Rich Asians was also wildly popular. Aws awesomely, it Nico Santos and Aquafina should have been the hosts of the Oscars. I'll be very honest. Having no host at all was a complete bullshit cop out. Um, if Beale Street could talk, not being nominated uh, for best picture was really wild. Um, throwing Spike Lee a bone after 30 years in the business or whatever, um, seemed a little peremptory, and maybe Do the Right Thing was a kind of a good screenplay, too, uh, once upon a time. Um, so eventually, um, everyone my age and older will be dead, and then a new day will dawn, a beautiful new day of cinema, uh, where movies like If Beale Street Could Talk will win Best Picture, and we won't have to have uh, the fantastic white savior movies. Having said that, this is not a white savior movie. If anything, um, it's a, uh, a very piercing and wonderful look uh, at race relations, and more than that, um, a character study of the highest order. Um, 
you will thrill and chill to the excellence. Uh, and also, when you leave, you won't be able to help reconsidering the fact that the state of race in America um, has moved, maybe one bishop's moved diagonally um, since 1967 uh, in all this time. And that's what makes this picture so resonant and so powerful. I give you now, from 1967, Norman Jewison's classic with Sidney Poitier and best actor Rod Steiger in The Heat of the Night. 